Let us pray. So, Father, we come to you with great thanks on this Epiphany Sunday as we rejoice in the reality that the gospel has come to us through the sending of your Son, Jesus Christ. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you, and Happy New Year to you, since last Sunday was New Year's Eve. I'd invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them, I'm focusing today primarily on our reading from St. Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 2, but also referencing um, both our Old Testament Psalm and New Testament readings today. Well, today we are observing Epiphany. Epiphany falls on the church calendar on January 6th, 12 days after Christmas. And since I've come to All Saints as rector, typically we have observed Epiphany actually on that day and then, and then not transferred it to Sunday. However, because it was a Saturday this year, um, I just didn't think it was prudent to probably do a service at 7 o'clock on Saturday night other than Easter Vigil. I um, didn't think I would see that many of you here. So... Um, so we transferred it today. Now next year, Epiphany falls on, um, on Monday, I believe. So we'll see all of you here on Monday night, 7 p.m. next year. The Sunday after Epiphany on the church calendar is, the bap- is historically the baptism of our Lord. So that would be today if we weren't transferring Epiphany. And I'll just briefly make mention of Christ's baptism, but that's not our primary focus today. Epiphany marks or commemorates the visit of the Magi to Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And there are quite a few popular notions about the Magi, which are not definitively based in Scripture. Now, I mentioned some of these. I went back through my notes in a sermon I preached um, on Epiphany back in 2019, but I think some of these things merit repeating today. So what are some popular myths or assumptions about the Magi? Well, first, there is the assumption or the myth that there were three magi or wise men. Scripture never says this. We do sing it in the first Noel, in the verse where we say, then entered in those wise men three and reverently on bended knee. You know the verse? But the idea that there were three probably comes from the three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We actually don't know how many there were, but there was probably a pretty large group of these folks, a large entourage considering the value of the gifts that they were bringing and the long distance that they had to travel. Second, they are often referred to as kings. Scripture never says this, but we do find it stated in the carol, We Three Kings, which we'll be singing a little bit later in this service this morning. And then third, they did not visit Jesus and the family while Jesus was in the stable. They didn't arrive immediately after Jesus' birth. It was probably several months later, but it could have been as much as two years later. And they clearly came to the house where Jesus and Mary and Joseph were residing in Bethlehem. Our gospel reading this morning from Matthew states this explicitly in verse 11 of chapter 2. So who were the Magi really? Well, we know that they were pagans, and they were Gentiles. They were definitely astrologers who believed that by observing heavenly bodies and their movements, as well as events such as comets and meteorites, that they could predict future events. They were part of the spiritual elite, 
of the Gentile pagan world in that day. They're most likely either from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, or Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. Persians particularly were known for divination and astrology, and the pagan Greeks and Romans held them in high esteem and looked to them um, for wisdom, false wisdom, but for wisdom in these matters. Now, in past sermons, both Father Jed and I over the years have focused on the Magi, the significance of their specific gifts they presented, and that sort of thing. Um, this morning, I want to look at things from a slightly different but quite important and significant tact, and that is how the Magi prophetically represent and point to the extension of the gospel to Gentiles or to all peoples. It's what theologians refer to as the mission to the Gentiles. Clearly, as I've already stated, the Magi were Gentiles, and how ironic but also significant for the extension of the gospel that Jesus, the newborn king, was recognized by pagan Gentiles, while so many among the Jews, especially their leadership, totally missed or ignored the significance of his birth. Christ's birth was only the first of a series of key revelations in the Gospels regarding the full identity of Jesus as the Christ, the eternal Son of God, Messiah, Savior of the world, who would give his life for the salvation of the world. In Jesus' birth, we see a twofold response or reaction on the part of people. Either they come and in acceptance and or to give homage or we see a rejection and or persecution of those who bear the good news of the gospel. Again, we see this pattern at Christ's birth, a revelation of who Jesus is beginning, not at his birth, but at his conception and throughout the events surrounding his birth in the days following. And we find faithful and humble Jews submitting themselves to the message. People such as Elizabeth and Mary, the mother of our Lord, among others. We see this in the shepherd's response to the announcement on the night of Christ's birth where they went with haste to Bethlehem to see this thing that the Lord had brought to pass. While at the same time, just seven miles away in Jerusalem, Jewish leaders ignored, rejected, or showed outright hostility to the news. And because of persecution, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were forced to flee to Egypt. Now, upon their return from Egypt some years later, Luke's gospel gives us an account that really begins, the next thing we read of is the boy Jesus in the temple, astounding the elders. We read this in Luke 2, verses 46 through 47. After three days, speaking of Jesus' parents, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So what we see here is a pattern of revelation of who Christ is, followed by hostility, persecution, and flight, or a stepping away in a sense, followed by return in power and authority. Similarly, we see this at Jesus' baptism, where there is a clear, irrefutable revelation of who Jesus is. We read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. 
I behold a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. <clears throat> Clearly in the gospels, many of the crowds who came out to be baptized by John expressed genuine faith and repentance. But the religious leaders, again, for the most part, mocked the message. And again, we see this pattern of acceptance, rejection, acceptance or rejection and persecution. Because after his baptism, Jesus withdraws in the wilderness to the wilderness. And then after 40 days, he returns to begin calling his disciples in great power and great authority. We see this pattern again in Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection. At his crucifixion, the rulers in Jerusalem, together with the chief priests and elders, are all aligned against Jesus and have him put to death. But the disciples, despite their confusion, ultimately cling to their faith. And St. Mark's gospel at the crucifixion even records that the Roman centurion standing guard at the cross comes to believe. Mark 15, 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And once again, we see Jesus going away through his death, but returning in fullness of life and divine power at his resurrection. You see the pattern? And following his resurrection, Jesus, before his ascension, gives this command to his disciples that we know so well. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The revelation to the Magi and their visit mark a definitive beginning of the message that salvation through Christ is available to all people, to all ethne, to all people groups in every nation. That the promise that all who look to him can know life, true life, and become his disciples. But all of this requires an appropriate and right response to God's message on our parts. A really crazy but true story, something that took place. It's been about 20 or 25 years ago now. I actually remember when this happened. Larry Walters at the time was a 33-year-old man living in the Los Angeles area. And he decided he wanted to see his neighborhood from a new perspective. So he went down to the, and some of you may recall this story. Some of you, he went down to the local Army Surplus store one morning and bought 42 used weather balloons that afternoon, he strapped them and himself into his Chase Lounge lawn chair, to which several of his friends tied the new helium, now helium-filled balloons. He took along a six-pack of beer, and when you read this, you think he probably had at least another one before this, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and a BB gun, figuring that he could shoot the balloons one at a time when he's ready to land. He thought the balloons might take him up in the air about 100 feet, but he was caught off guard when his friends cut the chair loose and he soared to about 16,000 feet in the sky, smack in the middle 
of the air traffic pattern for Los Angeles International Airport. And there were actually reports at the time, I remember this, of pilots radioing into the flight control tower saying what they saw. And you can imagine what was going through the flight control tower's mind when somebody, in a, a pilot in a jet calls in and says, there's a man in a chase lounge with balloons in the flight path or over LAX. Walters, again, assumed the balloons wouldn't take him that high, so he decided he should start shooting out the balloons, but then he dropped this BB gun out of his chair. <laughs> he stayed airborne for more than two hours before he was rescued and arrested by the police. <laughs> Once he was on the ground with the police, and obviously reporters came out for this as well, he was asked a couple questions. One, were you scared? Yes. Would you do it again? No. Why did you do it? And his response, ironically, was because you can't just sit there. <laughs> Which is an interesting thing. It is true, we can't just sit there, but allowing our idle minds to run in all kinds of directions and thinking in our own wisdom, how many of you know it will get you into all kinds of trouble? The birth of Jesus and the narratives from Scripture of the events around his birth call for a response on our parts, not a reaction, not a human-generated response, but a response to God's interaction in our lives, a healthy, godly response, because we can't just sit there. Now, that's a silly, crazy, but true story. But I think it does speak to us of the reality of what happens when we let ourselves go amiss with our own thoughts. Well, all of this that we read of with the visit of the Magi and around Christ's birth is a fulfillment of prophecy. And as we, we look at things this morning, it's important for us to understand this. In our Old Testament reading today from Isaiah 60, we read in part, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. In our Psalm verse 11 of Psalm 72 this morning, we read these words. And kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall do him service. And though further along in Psalm 72, beyond what we read this morning in verse 17, we see this. All nations shall be blessed through him and shall call him blessed. In St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, Jesus himself promises all of this. I tell you, he says, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. A clear picture and prophetic statement regarding the gospel extending to all people. And the entire book of Acts shows this continuing expansion of the gospel both to Jews and to Gentiles. And we know the church in Jerusalem, who were Jews at the time, struggled with this initially. But we see the gospel spreading, beginning in Jerusalem and going to the ends of the earth. We see this especially through the ministry of St. Paul the Apostle called to reach the Gentiles. We see this in Ephesians 3, where Paul speaks of this mission to the Gentiles that he was called to. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord and whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So what is God saying to you and me this morning and to us together as a church through all of this, through this revelation and through the expansion of the gospel and the mission to the Gentiles? Well, three things I want to mention this morning. First, as believers, we must not grow complacent or haughty. Did you hear that? As believers, we must not grow complacent and we must not grow haughty. The religious leaders in Jerusalem at Jesus' birth, at his baptism, and at his resurrection, and throughout the book of Acts, had all the knowledge and information that they needed. But they allowed themselves to be blinded through their own smugness and arrogance and through the love of worldly power and position. They were arrogant and carnal in their hearts and far from God's truth. And they were unteachable and deadened to the voice of the Holy Spirit. We can be really hard on them. And frankly, there's a lot of good reason to not hold them in esteem. But brothers and sisters, let's not be deceived. We, you and I, are men and women with feet of clay. And you and I can even have all of our doctrinal I's dotted and our T's properly crossed. And hear me, right doctrine, right belief is incredibly important. I'm not saying it isn't. But we can have it all seemingly correct up here and we can still miss it. Because it never translates or somewhere along the way it ceases to translate somewhere along the way into a genuine living faith. And we can easily become like those religious leaders in Jesus' day where we think we've got it all figured out, but our hearts are like stone. And we're quick to point out what everybody else has done wrong or is doing incorrectly. While at the very time we are drying up spiritually and withering ourselves. We don't guard our hearts and keep short accounts with God. Every single one of us can fall into this same kind of trap. In doing so, we miss both what God wills and wants to do in us to make us more like Jesus, to conform us to the image of his son. And we miss what God is doing in the world around us in our day. We must not grow complacent. We must not grow haughty. Second, we must not allow ourselves to be blinded by our own prejudices and biases. The religious elites in Jerusalem who missed it themselves were very quick to write everybody else off. 
And the gospel didn't just come to those in the centers of power and wealth. The gospel came to those on the margins just as much as it came to the elites. It came to shepherds, to Gentiles like the Roman centurion at the foot of the cross, and to pagans like the Magi. And God had to confront the early church, the early disciples about this. Remember, they were all Jews at the beginning. Remember the vision that God gave to St. Peter in Acts chapter 10, which I know in adult ed, by God's ordering of things, you all talked about this morning. Jim and I did not coordinate that. But in Acts 10 where we read, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So what is your prejudice or my prejudice or bias in proclaiming and sharing the gospel? Let's be honest. We all have them because we're fallen sinful human beings. We need to acknowledge them. We need to name them. And by God's power, we need to repent and through his grace and power, overcome and move beyond them. But what is it? Is it a person's skin color or race? Or their nation of origin or ethnicity? Economic status, either far wealthier than you or me, or less economic means than ourselves, so somehow we think we don't have an obligation or we shouldn't share the gospel with them? Is it that they speak a different language or we have the mindset, well, they need to learn what I, my language and then I'll tell them about Jesus. Or they dress differently, or have different hobbies and interests, or a line of employment that we don't relate to well? Or is it something like a person is making or has made lifestyle choices that make us uncomfortable, or perhaps should make us uncomfortable in a godly way, but yet we pull back rather than pressing in to show them the life of Christ. Or, over, or they are overtly engaging in sinful or notorious behaviors that is an affront to the truth of God and to you and me. And what do we do? We pull back and say, no, I'm not going to engage that person, whoever they may be, whatever they're doing failing to see them through the eyes of our Lord, failing to see the fact that they are lost and dead in their trespasses and sin, and they need to know the gospel and Christ's transforming power just as we've experienced it. And if it wasn't for God's grace and power in our lives, we could easily be that person. Our Lord calls us, brothers and sisters, to make disciples of all nations, of all people, irrespective of their background or what they've done or where they've come from or who they are. The late missionary bishop Leslie Newbigin put it this way. Mission is not a burden laid upon the church. It is a gift and a promise to the church that is faithful. The command arises from the gift. Jesus reigns and all authority has been given to him in earth and heaven. When we understand that, we should not be, need to be told to let it be known. Rather, we will not be able to keep silent. We must overcome our prejudices and biases. And third, all of us who know Christ 
have a story to tell, a true story to tell. One of the things we see with pagans and Gentiles in the Gospels and the New Testament is that they were often drawn toward God's truth through what we call general revelation or by human logic. Again, these things in creation are what theologians call general revelation. Psalm 19 reminds us, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. One day speaks to another and one night gives knowledge to another. There's neither speech nor language and their voices are not heard, but their sound has gone out into all lands and their words to the ends of the earth. Creation, general revelation, even human reasoning at times can point us to God. But general revelation alone is not enough. It's a starting point. The Magi were drawn by general revelation, by what they saw in the heavens. But there's no record one way or the other of them coming to full faith in Christ. People who are being drawn to God must hear the fullness of truth, which only comes through the Holy Scriptures, which reveal fully who Jesus Christ is. But they need to hear this through the work of God in our lives, in your life, and in mine. As we become living epistles, not just speaking at people, but living epistles of God's grace and God's transforming power, where we embody in all that we are and all that God is making us, where we embody the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, both in word and indeed. Every single one of us who is a true disciple of Jesus has an incredibly true and grace-filled story, not only to tell, but one which we must also, by God's grace and power, live. So that others encounter the living Christ through us. Our bishop, Bishop Chris Warner, um, since he's become bishop, has emphasized this whole truth of telling our stories, what God has done and continues to do in our lives with one another and with other people. He did this when he started in standing committee, which is like the Bishop's Advisory Council, and um, I'm currently a part of that committee. But we took each standing committee, four standing committee members, there are a dozen of us, and each standing committee, four of us, would take about 10 minutes apiece to share our story of what God had done and is doing in our lives. And for some people, that story means coming from an incredibly dark background and being pulled out of, you know, incredibly overt mire and sin. For others, it's a story of incredible woundedness coming through their childhood or their young adult years that God redeemed. And for some, it's a story of growing up in a Christian environment where there was never a time where they didn't know the truth of the gospel and there wasn't an age-appropriate understanding and level of engagement with the truth of who Christ is in their own lives. But all true stories of God's gracious power at work. Bishop Chris is encouraging us as a diocese to, to think in these ways. When, when he visits churches to, to confirm and receive new members, he has each one of them write down their story for him so that he can read it, not until after his visit, 
but he sits down and reads all of those accounts of what God has done in people's lives. We all have a true story to tell if we know Christ and we are disciples, living disciples of Jesus. And I'll be talking about this more um, in coming weeks and throughout the years. We look at what it means to live in this way as disciples and to be the embodiment of the reality of the gospel as we, we share what God has done, not in a haughty way, but in a way that reaches out to people and seeks people and pursues them no matter where they are, no matter what they've come from, no matter what their backgrounds when we do that, it's not a TED talk. You hear that? It's not canned. It's not like if you go to the Chamber of Commerce meeting and in 30 seconds or one minute, whatever their standard is, you tell what you do and what your business is all about. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about real, authentic, pressing in with people relationally and then sharing out of the abundance of our hearts what God has done and what God is doing in a way that touches them and invites them in to know this same life and transformation. And God will indeed do this if we are attuned to his voice, if we are attuned to his leading, if we're seeking to be obedient disciples of Jesus Christ. This is really what Epiphany is all about, the gospel going to all peoples, not just once, not just in the New Testament era, but going to all peoples through disciples of Jesus until the gospel reaches the ends of the earth, until the gospel reaches people in the most far-flung corners of the earth and the people in the most far-flung corners of darkness right here in this community. That the light of God, the light that God has designed to shine through Jesus, who is the light of the world. To those who walk in his light, he gives the right to be called sons and daughters of God. That's what Epiphany is about. That's what God's call to us in Epiphany is. But not just now, but in all of our lives, in all the days that God places us here so that we can be used by him, that we could be those embodiments of the gospel, living epistles, of God's goodness and grace and transforming power. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful for the good news of the gospel, for all people through your son, Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin, who became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who lowered himself to be one of us, to live in a human estate, yet without sin, fully human, yet fully God. Father, we give you thanks for your missionary heart, for the lengths you have gone to to redeem us and all those who will call upon the name of the Lord. So Lord, fill us with your spirit, fill us with your presence, root out of us, Prejudice and bias and haughtiness and arrogance. And use us as vessels in your hand, despite our shortcomings, despite our fallenness. That many would come to know and be set free. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.